Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, former President Trump yesterday sued the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack to prevent it from accessing records from his administration. The filing comes just as the committee meets today to pursue criminal contempt charges against Trump ally Steve Bannon for his refusal to cooperate with investigators. Los Angeles Congressmember Adam Schiff sits on the select committee. He joins us to talk about its latest moves and about his new book, Midnight in Washington, on the anti-democratic forces threatening the U.S. government. Forum is next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the Capitol meets later today to pursue criminal contempt charges against Steve Bannon, who has refused to provide documents and testimony about the events leading up to the attack, which took lives and nearly derailed the electoral vote count by Congress. Ex-President Trump has urged Bannon and other former aides to reject the committee's requests on executive privilege grounds and sued the select committee yesterday to prevent it from getting dozens of White House documents. Los Angeles Congressmember Adam Schiff is on the select committee, and in his new book, Midnight in Washington, about the vulnerabilities of our democracy, Schiff writes, The Trump presidency was a stress test for our system, and the results must wake us up. The survival of our institutions and the rule of law depend on what we do next. Congressman Schiff, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. I, I want to start with what happens next on your committee investigating January 6th, if I could, and its move to pursue contempt of Congress charges against Steve Bannon. What will that contempt referral accomplish? Well, we expect to vote on a report to hold him in criminal contempt uh, this evening. It'll then go to the House, uh, and if it passes there, as we expect it will, it'll be referred to the Justice Department, which has a statutory duty to present it to the grand jury. Uh, and it will mean that he will be prosecuted. Uh, he will face up to a jail, a year in jail, uh, or a $100,000 fine or both, uh, until he complies with the lawful demand for his testimony. So uh, it will be, in my view, a powerful sign that our democracy is recovering, that no one is above the law. People can't simply uh, not show up when they're subpoenaed to appear. Uh, so it's important in its own right because we need the information that he possesses. Um, why, for example, he uh, predicted the day before the insurrection that all hell was going to break loose on January 6th. Um, and, uh, but, but it's also important to send a message to other witnesses that they need to comply with the law. As we're learning, though, it is quite 
a long process from here, as you say, needing to go to the House for a vote uh, to request this legal action, then to the U.S. attorney to consult with the Justice Department and then potentially a trial. And uh, do you have reason to believe it won't be as long and, and drawn out as it as it sounds like? Are the wheels already turning? Do you have some insight on that? Um, yes. I mean, the wheels are turning and turning very quickly. Uh, Bannon didn't show up as recently as last week, and we are voting uh, tonight. Uh, and I'm, cer- I'm certain we'll have a vote very soon in the House. Um, what people are familiar with in the past when witnesses failed to appear, uh, like Don McGahn, the former White House counsel under Donald Trump, right. um, we had to sue him in civil court uh, and take it all the way up to the Supreme Court and all the way back down. It took two years before we ultimately got his testimony. But the reason we had to use civil litigation is that then attorney Bill Barr would not prosecute someone like McGahn uh, for uh, violating uh, the lawful demand for his testimony. Um, Bill Barr, after all, was held in contempt himself. Bill Barr was involved in, you know, involving himself in specific criminal cases where people had been indicted for perjury for lying to Congress, and he was trying to reduce their sentences, and in the case of Michael Flynn, uh, trying to make their case go away completely. So enforcement through the criminal justice system wasn't possible when you had Bill Barr running interference for those covering up for Donald Trump. But now we have a different Justice Department, uh, and prosecution is a viable remedy. Uh, And we have an attorney general who believes in the rule of law and that no one should be above that law. Because I'll tell you, if any of my constituents were subpoenaed to appear before a court proceeding or a congressional proceeding and simply refused to, they would be arrested. And Steve Bannon should be too. How long before you think you could secure a conviction? Well, that would be, you know, that's the, the, the role of the Justice Department. So Congress won't have a role in that apart from making that referral um, and documenting why uh, he should be prosecuted. So it will be up to the Justice Department to pursue that case and with alacrity uh, and and pursue it uh, in the criminal justice system. Hmm. But, you know, I'll tell you, I think that uh, uh, as soon as they do, it will have a great impact on other witnesses who will realize that if they try to ignore uh, lawful requests for information, that they will be charged with a crime. And that, to me, is a much more powerful deterrent than anything we had in the last four years when People knew that they could tie us up in court for years. Are you planning to pursue criminal contempt charges against, say, Mark Meadows or Cash Patel, who were also summoned to appear? Uh, you know, at the moment, they're engaging with our committee, uh, and I can't go into the nature of that engagement. But if we reach the point where they, they simply refuse or we determine that it's a delay tactic, then we'll move forward with whatever remedies that we have. Um, We were, for example, engaging with Jeffrey Clark, uh, this former Justice Department official uh, who allegedly was involved in trying to get Georgia or try to get the Justice Department to uh, to force Georgia to delay the appointment of electors uh, or appoint more than one slate of electors. And when we concluded that we were getting nowhere with this council, we uh, move very quickly from voluntary compliance to uh, a subpoena and a legal demand for compliance. And similarly, where we subpoena people and we get the sense that they're uh, they're stonewalling, uh, then we will uh, make the appropriate finding and refer it to the Justice Department. So while all of this is going on, 
President Trump, former President Trump has filed a lawsuit with the D.C. District Court to stop the National Archives from releasing White House records around the attack, citing executive privilege. First, what's your reaction to that? That was filed yesterday. Uh, it is not, I think, unexpected from someone who uh, tried to use litigation during his presidency and uh, abused litigation as a uh, as a private uh, party uh, before he became president. Um, and so, uh, you know, he is a, you know, what you would call a vexatious litigant, someone who uses the court system for purposes of delay uh, and sometimes for the purposes of just trying to inflict uh, costs on his adversaries. So not unexpected, but it will fail. Um, there is no, uh, I think, meritorious claim of executive privilege um, that uh, cannot be waived by the current president. And Joe Biden has said that he is not going to assert privilege here, that it's too important that the American people get the information that Congress needs to protect them uh, about all that went into January 6th and the former president's role and that of cabinet members and others uh, the role of the white nationalist groups in, in, in that rally and that attack, uh, what the president uh, knew or didn't know uh, about the propensity for violence that day. Uh, so the current administration, which is uh, the dominant party when it comes to any assertion of privilege, both for the current and previous administrations, uh, has made it clear the public interest clearly outweighs any considerations of privilege. And that is that's going to be given the ultimate weight by the courts. Mm. And the extraordinary circumstances, as you point out. We're talking to Congressmember Adam Schiff, who represents California's 28th District in Los Angeles County. He's chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and also sits on the select committee that is investigating the January 6th Capitol attacks. And if you, our listeners, want to join the conversation with questions for Congressman Schiff or your reactions to what you're hearing, you can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and you can email us forum at kqed.org. Robert writes, it would be useful to review the ex-president's current suit in the context of what he has always done for decades, learned from Roy Cohn, namely always counterattacking when challenged. Congressman Schiff, Robert has a point, right? I mean, Trump and his allies, they've used the strategy of stonewalling congressional subpoenas and running out the clock in the courts because it has worked in the past. It worked in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. It, it worked during impeachment, countless other congressional probes while he was in office. Why is this time different? I know you mentioned the executive privilege issues and that the, the White House, the current administration has rejected those and and that you have a different Justice Department, but uh, still things take a while. Uh, things do take a while, and, and I think Robert is absolutely correct. You have to look at Trump's uh, track record and see just how transparent an effort it is to merely delay. Uh, I think he and his lawyers have to know their claims will fail, but uh, but their goal is really to get them to fail later. Uh, he was successful uh, in putting off the the, the production of documents uh, while he was president, until after he was president, and now he's trying to do it until he hopes he can become president again and then, and then use and abuse the powers of that office uh, once more. Um, you know, what has changed uh, is we have a Justice Department willing to enforce the law. Uh, that's a very big change. Uh, but, it, but in terms of other things that will end up in civil courts, um, like this effort to 
stop the committee and the archives from uh, getting and delivering uh, these documents, they will do their best to delay. Uh, and we can only hope that the courts will recognize the obvious and not become a party to it. Uh, and indeed, some of the courts, uh, the district courts, for example, did recognize um, that Trump's actions to prevent the testimony of witnesses and the production of documents were merely meant for delay, and they expedited their schedules to reach very quick decisions. My hope here is that the same will take place, but what's more, that, that the appellate courts will not stay the production of documents uh, while litigation goes on. Uh, and I realize that may moot uh, the litigation, but that's fine if it does, because uh, Donald Trump can't allow, be allowed once again to deny justice by delaying it. Well, here's one thing that hasn't changed, and I think this is the core in your book, is that that there are people in Congress who are still very much tethered to the ex-president and very much willing to enable him. You write at one point about the insurrection, that while they reinforce the doors and fences, quote, we cannot guard our democracy against those who walk the halls of Congress, who've taken an oath to uphold our Constitution, but refuse to do so. I, you know, I, I think that is absolutely right. Uh, this was uh, one of the, uh, you know, not surprising, but but at the same time, terrible realizations for me uh, over the last several years, which is there's really no flaw in our Constitution. There's no flaw in the impeachment remedy. Uh, I wouldn't want to change that remedy to allow an impeachment of a president with a simple majority vote and turn the Congress into a parliament. But our system really does depend on members of Congress giving content to those provisions, giving meaning to them as they were intended, uh, discerning right from wrong and, and recognizing what the truth is and not trying to make their own truth. Uh, and in the absence of, of members of Congress employing that kind of good faith, it doesn't work. The system doesn't work. Hmm. Well, we'll have more with you right after the break, Congressman Schiff. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Congressmember Adam Schiff, who represents California's 28th District in Los Angeles County and chairs the House Intelligence Committee and sits on the Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. Adam Schiff has written a new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. And if you, our listeners, want to weigh in and where you think our democracy's greatest weaknesses are right now, or if you have questions for Congressman Schiff or about the Capitol Insurrection investigation, you can call us at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. 
Some of these calls by the president telling former aides and advisors, Congress member, that they should not cooperate with your committee on its investigation, saying that it is privileged, has caused some legal scholars to write pieces about how this is all very reminiscent of his presidency, but also drawing renewed attention to the Mueller report and the part of that that essentially said that the president is not above the law, that they could not charge him with obstruction of justice because there were legal questions around doing that with a sitting president, but that in their view, it 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 qualifies, (laughs) for lack of a better way of summing it up. And I guess one of the reasons that I'm trying to sum this up in this way is because, as we know, the way that it was characterized, and especially by then Attorney General William Barr, was that essentially the president had been, in fact, not charged with a crime, not had not committed a crime, essentially exonerated, even though it explicitly said the opposite. Yes, uh, you know, and, and I write a lot about Bill Barr uh, in the book because, to me, he was an illustration of something that historian Robert Carroll wrote, that uh, power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. Um, It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it reveals a lot about who we are. Uh, Power revealed Bill Barr to be uh, be craven, uh, be willing to do almost anything to be at the seat of power once again, including uh, just deliberately mislead the country about what Bob Mueller had said in his report repeatedly. Um, and, uh, And when he was asked by Congress whether Mueller where his team had communicated their deep uh, upset uh, about his misrepresentations, he misrepresented to Congress uh, about uh, th- those communications with Mueller. Um, and, and I think in, in a way that, uh, in the same way that, that Donald Trump, uh, because he lies so constantly, believes that everyone else lies the way he does, um, because he's corrupt, he views everyone else must be corrupt in the same way, I think Bob Mueller, because he's a man of such great integrity and rectitude, uh, presumed that others had the same rectitude. Uh, And I have to imagine that he was uh, devastated by by, uh, the duplicity of Bill Barr uh, and his willingness to misrepresent two years of Bob Mueller's work uh, in order to serve the president's interests. But the the broader uh, issue you raise uh, is what about now? If you take the position that you can't prosecute a president while he's in office, a position which, by the way, I think the Justice Department has wrong, um, and you also take a position that once they're out of office, they can't be prosecuted because it would be to take the country backward, then the president really does become above the law. And that's dangerous as an abstract matter. It's even more dangerous when you consider that Donald Trump is running for president again. So then do you think that the Biden Justice Department should prosecute President Trump and even out of office now for obstruction of justice? I think that they need to investigate uh, the president's crimes. And the ones that I'm most concerned about, frankly, are ones that took place uh, long after his obstruction of justice. Uh, In particular, uh, Donald Trump on the phone to the Secretary of State of Georgia, um, uh, trying to coerce that Secretary of State into finding 11,780 votes that don't exist, that he knows doesn't exist. Uh, And the fact that he gives such a specific number, just the number he would need to beat Biden, uh, shows just how corrupt uh, a demand this was. And I think anyone else who made that demand um, would have been indicted by now. 
And I, I just don't see any sign it's even being investigated. Yeah. Now, maybe at the end of the day, uh, you have to make a, a difficult decision about whether to prosecute a prior president. But I don't think you can just ignore the crimes that have been committed. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I do think that these need to be vigorously investigated by the Justice Department. There's already an indictment in the Southern District of New York of someone named individual number one, who we know to be Donald Trump, for directing and coordinating a campaign fraud scheme. The Justice Department argued that Michael Cohen needed to go to jail because he was directed and coordinated in that scheme. So what's the argument for saying that the guy that did the directing and did the coordinating somehow gets a pass? Um, so, I mean, I think if we're going to hold to the principle that no one is above the law, that means Donald Trump, too. Uh, you know, we, we've all heard the, you know, too big to fail argument about the banks. Uh, are we now to assume that, the, that a president, no matter how corrupt, is somehow too big to jail? It could further divide the country. It could really take all the energy and oxygen out of the Biden presidency if it's focused on this, but you still think it's worth it? I think that these crimes need to be investigated. Um, these alleged crimes need to be investigated. And, you know, uh, again, I don't envy the difficulty of the judgment that the attorney general would have to make. Uh, once uh, you work it up and you see what laws may have been violated, uh, and then you do the balancing of how important uh, it is, how strong the evidence is, and, uh, and yes, what impact that has on the country to, to potentially jail a former president. But I, I don't think you ignore it. Uh, and I don't see any, any signs at this point that the Justice Department is even reviewing um, those actions. And, uh, and that, to me, is dangerous. Uh, mm. After the pardon of Nixon, uh, after four years of Trump, in which the Justice Department said you can't prosecute him, he's still the president, to now say we can't even look at uh, uh, the criminal uh, conduct he may have been engaged in um, creates a very dangerous different precedent. And, uh, and I, I just don't think that we can turn away from that um, in the interest of moving forward. I think in order to truly move forward, we need to have an accounting of, of what's taken place. Can I ask you about an anecdote that you shared with regard to the Mueller testimony, and this was related to your personal appeals to Robert Mueller to testify about the report. And then we all remember that testimony, his halting style, his, his answers were a little bit hard sometimes to understand. And you wrote that you found his testimony heartbreaking. What, what made it such a particularly painful experience for you? And and what do you think was going on at that moment when you say that you you think Mueller had changed? Well, it was heartbreaking to me, not in the way that I think it had been heartbreaking to others around the country. I didn't have the expectation that Mueller's testimony was going to create a, a you know cavalcade towards impeachment. Um, and, and I think others may have had that expectation. I didn't have that expectation. Um, but I, I knew Bob Mueller um, and, uh, and so admired and respected and still admire and respect him. I think he's just an incredible public servant. But, but two years had brought a remarkable change. Um, and, and, I, and I couldn't ignore that. Um, one of the scenes that I write about in the book is gathering in the Intelligence Committee uh, in the, the, the so-called bunker, three floors below the Capitol, where the other members of our committee, I'd ask them to assemble with me and watch 
Mueller's testimony in the Judiciary Committee, committee because that testimony was going to immediately precede his testimony in our committee. And I wanted to make sure that we reacted to anything that was said or not said. And as we watched in the bunker, um, and I saw how much he had changed and how difficult even simple questions seemed to be to answer, um, you know, I, 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 I was shocked. And I told the members, you need to cut down the number of your questions. You need to cut down the length of your questions. If you think a question is too long, it is too long. And if you're calling for a narrative answer, you're, you're not going to get a narrative answer. Uh, we need to have page references of his report ready uh, and accessible. Um, and, and, and it was hard to, to watch. It was hard to write about. I wanted to be respectful. I want to be respectful because I have such admiration for him. But, but there was no ignoring the, the impact of that halting testimony. Um, we, had, we did hope, even, even though I wasn't expecting it to, to uh, as I mentioned, to lead to uh, a, a march towards impeachment, we did hope that he could bring the report to life um, in a way that, that uh, the document itself could not and would not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that didn't happen. He, he was not able to do that. Yes, you ultimately say that no one should have been under any illusion that the only way Trump was going to be removed from office was at the ballot box. Let me go to caller Donald in San Francisco. Hi, Donald. Hi, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I haven't read the book, but I'm assuming it will be talking about the representatives in Congress who voted to discredit the election, the fair election. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 1950s when honorable people were asked and sometimes required to take a loyalty oath that said they would not overthrow the government. And there was a kind of hysteria at that time, fearing communists and fearing uh, interference in our system, subversives and that sort of thing. Yet when in the Congress... There were about 100 and more representatives who voted to discredit a fair election. Seems even more dangerous to me than the subversive uh, question about communists in the government. And yet, here we are talking in a legalese way, which I respect, of course, but so calm about something that was so thought to be dangerous before makes me wonder whether we care what happens. Mm. So that's my question. Madam Schiff, your reaction to what Donald is saying? Well, I, I can understand how astonishing you find this. I, I, I share the disbelief. Um, you know, I, uh, on that day, on January 6th, I, I described what it was like to be on the House floor and to see the doors being battered and the windows breaking and to, to uh, feel the fear um, of that day, uh, but also the anger that came afterwards. And a lot of my anger was directed and is directed at what I describe as the insurrectionists in suits and ties. The people outside the building that were battering police and, and gouging them and bear spraying them, they believed the big lie. But the people in the chamber, they knew it was a big lie and they were, they were willing to push it even after the insurrection when we returned to the House floor and there was still blood on the ground where Ashley Babbitt had been shot. Um, even then, they continued to push the big lie even today they continue to push the big lie, uh, and uh, uh, and and so um, I I think this is really what places the country in the greatest peril. If 
if we can't trust that our elections can be used to decide our differences and who should represent us, it just leads to violence. It has led to violence. Uh, and they're still pushing it. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, reasons I wrote this book is there's been a lot written about what took place inside the Trump White House and not very much written about what took place in the Congress mm-hmm. and how it was the members of Congress that really enabled Donald Trump to tear down the guardrails of our democracy and continue to tear down those guardrails. Well, Daniel in San Francisco writes, how do you get up every morning and fight for us? Don't you ever get tired and just say, I give up? It's all too much. Thank you for all your efforts to keep America free. Adam Schiff, you do say that this book is in part the story of how good people were persuaded to abandon their beliefs and ideology and their dedication to something larger than themselves. You talk about how you used to work well with Representative Devin Nunes, for example, and that you were really stunned at how quickly he was willing to tether himself to to President Trump at the time. What have you learned from the story about the people that you are talking about, quote, good people persuaded to abandon their beliefs and ideology? Well, first of all, in terms of how how I keep going, um, you know, at times I have to say in the thick of it, uh, I would say in the morning, I just need to get through the day. Uh, and at the end of the day, I would say with some some marvel, um, I'm still standing. Uh, and uh, and I was determined to, to get up every morning and do the best uh, I could to the best of my ability and realize that was all I could do. Um, and and I think everyone, everyone needs to realize they can't do everything. Um, don't be paralyzed into doing nothing because we can't do everything. There is a role for each one of us to play. And I I wanted to write the stories, not just of of those that capitulated to Trump's immorality, but, but more importantly to those who stood up to him, the, the people like former uh, ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich and uh, former Charge, Bill Taylor, Alexander Vindman, a purple harp recipient who was questioned about his patriotism because he had the, the unmitigated mitigated temerity to report uh, to the White House counsel that he thought what the president was doing was wrong and maybe even worse than wrong. Uh, you know, the Fiona Hills, you know, Dan Coates, who was leading the intelligence community, but wouldn't go along with the president's lies about Russia or love affair with, with Kim Jong-un. Um, uh, you know, as, as many stories there are of uh, uh, capitulation, there are also people like Liz Cheney. Um, who refused to to carry a big lie for the leader of their party. Um, uh, so, yes, there are the Elise Stefanics uh, who will always step up and say, if she's not willing to carry the big lie, um, then then I will. Um, but but we, need also, to, yes. we need to look to the stories of courage as, as well as those of cowardice. Though I have to note, you're, you did have some particular disdain for Congress member and minority leader Kevin McCarthy in your book, you, you made a point to share an anecdote where you essentially said that, that McCarthy lies. Well, the most often question I get from my constituents and others around the country is, do the Republicans really believe what they're saying? What do they say when they're in private? Uh, and I share this anecdote because I want people to know what they say in private. Um, and, and it was about sitting next to Kevin McCarthy on an airplane flying back to Washington, D.C. on United. Uh, this, was, uh, this was long before Trump, but it shows you know, how, how Kevin McCarthy was really made for this moment when his party has no adherence to the truth. So we're sitting next to each other on the plane, having a complete nothing burger of a conversation. 
the kind you have when you're waiting for the movie to start, uh, any movie to start. Uh, and uh, we're talking about the 2010 midterms, which were still six months away. And I was saying I thought Democrats would win the midterms. And he was saying he thought Republicans would win the midterms. Nothing remarkable, unusual or surprising in any way. And we get to Washington and we go our separate ways. And unbeknownst to me, he goes off and does a briefing for the press. And he tells the press, Republicans are going to win the midterms. Everybody knows it. Uh, he sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane and Adam Schiff admitted Republicans were going to win the midterms. And I learned about this the next morning and I'm, I'm just beside myself. Uh, and I go rush up to him on the House floor and I said, Kevin, I would have thought if we were having a private conversation on the plane that we were having a private conversation. But if we weren't, you know, you tell the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Um, and, you know, for all too many of them, that's how it goes. They will say whatever they need to say, want to say to gain power. Um, in, in that respect, um, he was made for a moment when his party's leader um, had no adherence to the truth, uh, believed the truth wasn't truth, that he was entitled to his own alternate facts. Uh, of all the things that the Trump administration and its enablers like Kevin McCarthy would do over the last four years among the most destructive was this relentless assault on the truth. Well, David writes, why aren't members of Congress being charged with treason or obstruction of justice for ignoring subpoenas or not cooperating with the investigators or encouraging the insurrection? I want to see accountability, especially in elected leaders. We're talking to Congressman Adam Schiff. His book is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. He's chair of the House Intelligence Committee. He is a representative for Los Angeles and also a member of the select committee that is investigating the January 6th Capitol attacks. You, our listeners, are with us. 866-733-6786, the number to call with your questions. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Congressmember Adam Schiff about the vulnerabilities of our democracy and about uh, the investigation into the January 6th Capitol attack and his role on the select committee looking into it. And if you have questions about the Capitol insurrection investigation or reactions to what you've been hearing Congressman Schiff say about our democracy or about members of Congress, you can call us at 866-733-6786, email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Now let me go to Susan in San Francisco. Susan, thanks for waiting. 
Thank you so much. Um, I just finished your book, and I just want to say I think I speak for millions of people when I say thank you so much for your public service. We really need people like you, and just thank you so much. I wanted to get back to the um, question of delay and what is the time frame that we're looking at. If there is a referral to the Justice Department for Steve Bannon's re refusal to appear, how long can we expect it to take for there to be some actual prosecution and a trial? Susan, thanks. Congressman? Yeah, thank you for the very kind words about the book. And in terms of how long it will take to prosecute, you know, the, the first critical decision uh, will be for the Justice Department to bring the case. Uh, and I would hope that they would, uh, would make that decision quickly uh, and bring charges quickly because there's a real urgency here to getting to the bottom of all those who were involved in, uh, in that insurrection. Uh, once they do uh, charge Steve Bannon, uh, they, they make an arrest. Uh, it's assigned to a judge. Uh, he is arraigned. Uh, I think all of that takes place uh, fairly quickly once the case is, is initiated. Um, you know, it could be that they, when they bring it to the grand jury, that they feel they need to do more investigation uh, after bringing it to the grand jury to, to ultimately file charges, although, frankly, it seems to me pretty open and shut. Um, but uh, then, it's a, then it's a question of uh, the court system and... Uh, uh, the court system is, because of the pandemic, uh, pretty overwhelmed uh, as, a, as a general matter. But I think uh, that a case of this seriousness, um, uh, hopefully both the prosecution and the court will understand the need uh, for some uh, urgency. Well, Susan, thanks for the question. Let me go to Don in San Jose. Next, hi, Don. Yes. Yeah, so my question is, uh, I would most like to know uh, the origins of the insurrection, who funded it, who are really the people behind it. This is not by any stretch of the imagination uh, a, a spontaneous exhibition. Uh, somebody paid for those uh, people to come from across the country uh, to stay in those hotels. Why can't we find out who is behind this and uh, uh, go after them? What are you finding out, Congressman Schiff? Uh, you know, I, I think your, your question is exactly right uh, and really part of our mission. Uh, we have subpoenaed uh, a number of organizations that have documents that will help us determine, okay, who paid for this? Who organized this? Um, why were there different uh, permits when the, the, there was a connection between the different organizations that were involved in the rallies that led up to the insurrection? What was the role of these white nationalist groups? Uh, did these white nationalist groups that generally op operate uh, separate from each other, did they coordinate and collaborate? Uh, why did they know to bring military uh, gear with them? So these are just some of the questions. Frankly, some of the biggest questions uh, involve the president. Uh, what did the president know about the likelihood of violence? What did the president know about the participation of white nationalist groups? What was the president's plan and expectation for January 6th, if Mike Pence didn't do what he wanted him to do uh, and refused to uh, accept the uh, certification of states that had voted for Joe Biden. So those are those questions are at the heart uh, of what we're investigating. We're determined to get the answers. 
Well, James writes, I understand the need to investigate any involvement of members of the government in enabling the attack on Congress, but at what point does this become another Benghazi-like witch hunt that only continues to polarize citizens while Congress sits on popular bipartisan infrastructure legislation that is 20 years overdue? There's that strain of maybe we just need to move on that we were touching on earlier. Uh, You know, in the case of Benghazi, there were um, probably five or six or seven investigations of Benghazi before the Select Committee on Benghazi was even formed. Um, All of those prior investigations um, debunked the conspiracy theories of Benghazi. Um, And I I was involved with one of them in the Intelligence Committee. Uh, It was chaired by a Republican, Mike Rogers, uh, and it completely debunked uh, these conspiracy theories Ken McCarthy, though, had something different in mind. He wasn't interested in getting to the truth or the facts of Benghazi. He was interested in taking down Hillary's polling numbers. Uh, and that was obvious from the very beginning of the Benghazi investigation. And in, in a way, and I write about this in the book, the Benghazi investigation was a harbinger of things to come. Uh, it was an illustration that Republicans were willing to uh, create an alternate reality, even around the, the tragic death of four Americans, for the most political and partisan of reasons. Uh, That is a very different situation than investigating a violent attack on our capital. The first such investigation uh, into all of what led up to that day and its aftermath. Uh, So uh, very different story with what we're trying to accomplish uh, in getting to the truth. Uh, We're working in a bipartisan way to do it uh, with with two other Republicans who uh, understand that the mission is to get to the truth Uh, And we want to write a comprehensive report like the 9-11 Commission uh, that will help protect the country uh, in the future. Uh, So, you know, again, I I guess this is in the the same category we were discussing earlier, uh, and that is how much priority do you put on moving forward and how much priority do you put on accountability so you can move forward? I think there needs to be accountability. Uh, The last point I would make is none of what we're doing in terms of investigating the insurrection Uh, is interfering, slowing down, or inhibiting our ability to get an infrastructure bill and a Build Back Better bill passed, which I'm confident we will do. Uh, And the reason it hasn't been done already has nothing to do uh, with uh, our investigation of January 6th. But the fact that an evenly divided Senate, uh, near unanimity, which is what we have in the Democratic caucus, is not enough. We need unanimity. uh, And getting those extra handful of votes um, is, is essential, uh, and we will do it. So uh, I think you'll find, and I hope soon, that we're able to do both at the same time because we have to. Let me go to caller Bernardo next. Hi, Bernardo. Hi. Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for all you're doing to try to keep uh, Trump and his posse uh, accountable for what they have done and what they continue to do uh, to our country. Uh, But my question has to do with how do you maintain civility when dealing, you know, you told the story that you had with McCarthy on the airplane, but how do you maintain civility dealing with them, with McCarthy, Nunes, Marjorie Tyler Greene? I I would find that extremely difficult to just have some sort of relationship with them. Bernardo, thanks. You know, it's a really important question. Um, And after, particularly after the insurrection, a lot of my Democratic colleagues you know, vowed that they were never going to work with anyone who had voted to decertify the results. They, they were done with them. Uh, and I wrestled with what to do. Um, 
but but at the end of the day, I realized that on the committee that I chair, the Intelligence Committee, um, more than you know, more than half the Republicans on that committee voted to overturn the election. And if I refused to work with them on anything else, uh, none of the work of the committee would get done because the work of the Intelligence Committee is is very difficult, very complicated. Uh, it's uh, not partisan. Uh, but because it is often controversial, uh, both sides need to come, come to agreement uh, to put in place new privacy protections and make sure the agencies are talking to each other in the way that they should and make sure that agencies aren't talking to each other, that are not permitted to. Uh, and so I have to work with my colleagues. Um, and we have been able to get the work of the committee done. Uh, and I have to be able to compartmentalize. And yes, it is difficult, um, but uh, but but the work needs to get done. Um, at the same time, uh, I, you know, I write with candor about, uh, about what my colleagues did um, and, uh, and how much I think that they will be held accountable. Um, you know, as I said during the Senate impeachment trial, um, those that refused to stand up to Donald Trump um, would have their names tied to his with the court of steel and for all of history. Um, because at the end of the day, it's the only thing that will ensure um, there's an incentive for people to do the right thing is knowing that if they don't, they'll be held accountable. You have said that you absolutely believe Donald Trump will run again in 2024. And I'm just thinking around this question of civility that Bernardo is raising. I mean, if the Republican Party embraces him as a candidate, um, I, I can't even imagine what bipartisanship could even look like at that point. But do you think the party will embrace him? And do you think he'd win? Um, oh, I, I absolutely think he's running. Um, I think it would be just, uh, um, I think it would drive him mad if someone else got the attention as the Republican nominee. So I think pathologically he's not capable of not running. Um, I think given the grip he has on his party uh, today that he will be the nominee. Uh, and that we have to take that candidacy very seriously. I, I also think that, um, you know, to the caller, that as long as he's a leader of that party, and as long as that party is not so much, not at all really a party of ideas anymore or ideology, but a cult, an autocratic cult of the former president, um, there's no accommodating their efforts to tear down our democracy. They just have to be beaten at the polls. Um, but it's also sadly, tragically, the case that if you have a leader of one party whose whole motivation is to find new and inventive ways to divide uh, Americans and, uh, and, and push out bile every day, you know, just uh, today, of course, he was attacking Colin Powell, who just passed away. And he, he, he couldn't even wait to, uh, to attack Colin Powell. Um, you know, some, someone of that fundamental indecency um, it is going to always contribute to a poisonous climate. And, and one of the things that so aggrieves me about what the Republican Party leadership did after the insurrection is you could see them toying with the idea of casting Trump overboard. Uh, you could see McConnell wrestling with, with, with whether he should try to do so. For, for McCarthy, those pangs of conscience lasted about 30 seconds. But for McConnell, you could really see the internal struggle. Um, and yet he, he gave into that struggle. He, he decided that if he tried to throw Trump overboard, he'd be thrown overboard himself. But, you know, at a certain point, you've got to ask, why are you there? Uh, if you're not going to defend the Constitution, uh, why are you there? 
And, um, uh, and so uh, I would like to say that there's an easy path to restoring stability. You know, in my own case, I, I try to not engage in the kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, name calling that, uh, that, I, that you hear so often from the president. And believe me, I'm tempted uh, many times. Um, but, uh, but I don't think we're going to have the kind of return to the way it was until we have the supreme arsonist of, of our uh, body politic um, off the scene for good. And we're talking with Los Angeles Congress member Adam Schiff, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go now to Christopher in Arroyo Grande. Hi, Christopher. Hi, good morning. How are you? Great. What's on your mind? Yes, uh, I, want, I want to thank uh, Mr. Schiff for, for all the work that he's doing. Unfortunately, we live in a time where even the glaring truth is, is not believed and is not seized by, by a large fraction of the public, and messaging is increasingly becoming a, a critical factor. So my question is, what is the committee's plan for messaging the results of the investigation? You know, your point is exactly the, the right one. And uh, one of my colleagues, Mike Quigley from Chicago, uh, put it better than anyone I've heard so far um, when he said, uh, it used to be that people would say, I'll believe it when I see it. Today, it's more people will only see it when they're ready to believe it. Uh, you can show people footage of the attack on the Capitol. You can show footage of people beating police officers, they'll still believe it was a normal tourist day. Um, they won't see what's right in front of them because they're not ready to see it uh, because they, they still want to believe Donald Trump's lies. And, and frankly, there's still this huge amplifier in Fox News and Newsmax and OAN uh, to, to give supporters of the former president a completely different world to live in. Uh, and you have the contribution uh, in social media of algorithms that divide us and only show us what we want to see. Uh, it's really hard to break through that. And we recognize on the select committee just what a difficult task that is. Um, and, and part of, you know, meeting that challenge is holding hearings that will, will capture the public's attention, like the hearing we did with those police officers. So people can't look away. Uh, so they're forced to confront the truth. Uh, and we intend to have more of those hearings. And we intend to write a report um, that will hold up just as the 9-11 Commission report held up, a definitive report about this tragedy uh, so that the history is preserved. And we will use that report to get out the message to the American people to the best of our ability. Um, but but um, you're right, it's, it's a tough job, um, made all the more difficult by, by something that, that Donald Trump had and has that I believe uh, if Richard Nixon had had, if Richard Nixon had been the beneficiary of a Fox News channel uh, devoted to uh, becoming essentially his state-run TV and, and propagating his falsehoods, I think Richard Nixon would have never been forced to leave office. And we're going to have to figure out how to be much better consumers of information. It's one of the cardinal challenges facing the country and facing the rest of the world. Well, Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, I know you've been called to emergency meeting, and I want to thank you for joining us today. And best of luck. Well, thank you. Uh, we're going to get through this. If I could just end on a, on a more upbeat note, um, I titled the book Midnight in Washington because it's just an hour of every day, midnight. Uh, so 
a hopeful time because you know that what follows is filled with the prospect of light. And, and we believe that we're going to get through this. Uh, and what we do in this present moment will determine how quickly we get through this. Congressman Adam Schiff, the book is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Congressman Schiff represents California's 28th District in Los Angeles County, chairs the House Intelligence Committee and sits on the select committee that is investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. A couple of final thoughts from listeners. Curtis writes, the January 6th committee is a firewall protecting our democracy. There aren't many firewalls left. Trumpism has taken over the GOP and our democratic future seems hopeless. Can America ever recover? Julie writes regarding any government official who acts as though the law does not apply to them. The leaders of any community must adhere to the law more stringently than other constituents because it is part of their job to set a good example. Our last president and his cronies have been setting a bad example with their behavior if they get away with it. Things will get worse. A final thank you to Representative Schiff from Kathleen. Thank you for all your hard work in protecting the Constitution and we the people. I am concerned that no matter what the outcome, should any appeals reach the Supreme Court, all the effort will be for naught. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, and Grace One. Susan Britton produced today's segment and is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimya Akbari and Jennifer Eng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. You've been listening to our conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. Thanks so much for your questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.